This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Cerebral Edema in Diabetic Ketoacidosis by Dr. Michael Agus. Hi and welcome. I'll be speaking today about diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. My name is Michael Agus. I am a pediatric intensive care doctor and a pediatric endocrinologist at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm the director of the Medicine Critical Care Program here at Children's and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Now what, do you, what does a patient succumb from? What do they die of? Uh, in general, cerebral edema. Literature review. Uh, there have been three major studies in the literature over the past several years, uh, fairly large studies but retrospective, totaling about 11,000 patients. And, and together, they seem to demonstrate that there's about a 1% incidence of significant cerebral edema among patients who uh, present with DKA. Among those who get significant cerebral edema, about 40% will die or have a severe neurologic outcome. If you do the math, that's a net population mortality of about 0.4%. A more recent study uh, by a, a colleague of mine here at Children's, Dr. DeCourcy, uh, looked at a FIS database review. FIS is uh, an administrative database we have access to in the U.S. Uh, was able to look at a total of just over 37,000 DKA patients in a single study. And to our surprise, we found a significant increased incidence of significant cerebral edema, uh, defined as edema that uh, prompted therapy uh, of either mantle or hypertonic saline uh, by a practicing uh, clinician. Fourfold increase in the incidence, but uh, a 10% mortality. So a significantly reduced mortality. And on the face, that looks like good news. We're treating more patients and they're doing better. But again, when one does the math, basically we haven't changed the ultimate mortality at all. We're treating four times as many patients. Uh, they're one quarter, as one quarter as likely to have a, a bad outcome and ultimately 0.4% uh, population mortality. So despite um, our advances over the decades, it's not clear uh, that we've made a major impact and overall mortality, but these numbers are low and it's easy to have had even a 30 or 40 percent effect on mortality and have that really be difficult to detect uh, with these studies. Risk factors for cerebral edema. Uh, what are the known risk factors for cerebral edema? Well, again, back to uh, Dr. Glazer's paper uh, from 2001. Uh, she identified four major risk factors in children with significant cerebral edema. Uh, three of them uh, are shown here, a high BUN, a low PCO2, uh, and treatment with bicarbonate. Now, we know uh, that a high BUN is associated with someone who's dehydrated. How about a low PCO2? That's someone who has a very low pH, and they're hyperventilating and dropping their PCO2 so that they can blow off some of that additional acid. And who gets treated with bicarbonate? Those who have the lowest pH. So although these, these were independent risk factors, uh, the reality is that all three of them correlate really quite directly with severity of illness. And while they may be independent risk factors, 
uh, as clinicians, we look at patients and our, uh, our message is the more dehydrated, the more acidotic they are, the more at risk they are. Uh, the fourth risk factor was the one that really kind of threw us for a loop. Fourth risk factor, uh, if you notice, uh, demonstrates a lower relative risk when the serum sodium rises by more than uh, 5.8 per hour. The prior three risk factors I showed you, if, uh, if they were true, the relative risk is increased. In this case, when it's true, the relative risk decreases. What that suggests is that a serum sodium rise of 5.8 per hour is a good thing. Now, we measure uh, serum sodium every two hours. And that would mean that we would have a change uh, of 12, almost 12 millimoles per liter over a two hour period. That means patient comes in with serum sodium of 125. You check it again a couple hours later, it's 137. That is an extraordinary change. And as a, a clinician, I would posit that this is not, uh, in my experience, a degree of change in serum sodium that we see very commonly at all. So what do we do with this risk factor? Do we just, does it only apply when the serum sodium rises so dramatically that uh, to, to an extent that we almost never see? Instead, we can look at it uh, from a little bit of a different point of view. If you come over here and look at this graph, I'll show you what I mean. So if we look uh, at the evolution of sodium and glucose concentrations over time in the setting of DKA, uh, we can think about it uh, from a point of view of uh, being above and below normal. So if we consider this to be the normal range, uh, and we start with a uh, uh, glucose concentration uh, that's quite high, uh, we know uh, from our discussion that the uh, serum sodium uh, will be relatively low. And the idea in uh, resolution of uh, DKA is that as the glucose comes down uh, into the normal range, the serum sodium ought to rise. The reason the serum sodium is low to begin with uh, you'll recall, is that glucose is an osmotic agent that pulls water into the bloodstream, diluting everything that's in the bloodstream. So it's going to dilute sodium, it's going to dilute potassium and chloride as well. But sodium is the most obvious, the most prominent. Uh, and as glucose uh, comes out of the uh, extremely high range into the normal range, the exact same thing ought to happen with sodium. The risk factor that we were discussing earlier uh, is when glucose begins to come down, but sodium does not come up uh, at the same rate. Uh, the, if if uh, sodium comes up a little bit and kind of flattens out, that is considered uh, the in invocation of the risk factor uh, that sodium has not risen uh, fast enough. And this is considered a risk factor uh, for developing significant cerebral edema. One way to uh, follow uh, the relationship between the hyperglycemia and the hyponatremia over time uh, is to look at the corrected serum sodium. One way to think about 
the sodium changes that we talked about are to look at a value that we refer to as the corrected sodium. Corrected sodium answers the question, what would the serum sodium be if glucose was normal? We use a uh, formula to calculate this, uh, and we say, uh, we take the serum sodium and look at the uh, serum glucose, and we say how many hundreds over 100 is the serum glucose, and multiply that times two, and add it to the uh, serum sodium, and we get our corrected sodium. For example, serum sodium is 125, and the blood sugar is 900. Well, that's uh, 8 hundreds over 100. So 8 times 2 is 16. We add 16 to the 125, we get 141. So the corrected sodium in this example is 141, while the measured sodium is 125. A question that's often asked in this situation is, which is real? Which is the real serum sodium? The answer is very definitively that the serum sodium is 125. The sodium that the brain is seeing, it's 125. What would the sodium be if the glucose was normal? 141. But the glucose isn't normal. The glucose is 900. And so right now, the serum sodium is quite low. The way we use the uh, uh, measured, uh, the way we use the corrected sodium to think about this risk factor is to say the corrected sodium should be normal and stay normal. If, as we saw in the graph, the uh, glucose comes down and the serum sodium does not rise adequately, uh, that should be reflected in a corrected sodium that is low. So if the corrected sodium drops below 137, 138, uh, we really need to get ourselves to the bedside, do a thorough uh, neurologic exam, and determine whether or not this patient has symptoms of significant cerebral edema, and think about treating at that point. Uh, but this uh, risk factor uh, is really only present when the serum sodium does not rise sufficiently. Now you may ask, why would, uh, why would I not just give sodium? Well, there's nothing, uh, th I don't have any data to suggest that one should not treat this scenario with sodium. Uh, but I will uh, tell you that every study that's ever looked at rate of sodium administration has not found it to be predictor of significant cerebral edema. Uh, we are physicians, and when something is low and it's a bad sign, then our inclination is to treat it to bring it up. The best example, uh, the best analogy I could think of is a patient with meningitis. Let's just say that uh, uh, eight-year-old has meningitis and has a CSF white count of 10,000. Now you know that a high CSF white count is, very, uh, is a very poor prognosticator and, and a significant risk factor. I will give you the choice. You can either treat this patient with ceftriaxone or you can plasmapherese the CSF. Which are you going to choose? You're gonna choose the ceftriaxone because you understand that the problem here is that there are bacteria that are eating part of the brain and causing a massive amount of inflammation that is putting the patient at risk for a severe outcome. The white cells are only a symptom of the underlying pathology. I would posit to you that that is really the exact same thing that's going on here. When the sodium fails to rise normally, it is not the problem, it is a symptom of the problem. Uh, and it is very likely uh, connected to uh, inappropriate ADH secretion, uh, s 
that, that is triggered by an injured brain and a brain that is becoming uh, uh, more and more uh, either ischemic or uh, significant swelling with uh, significant pressure building up. Triggering release of ADH and inability to, uh, uh, to, to allow the kidney to clear adequate free water. Uh, that doesn't get any closer to a treatment approach, uh, but it does point out that the failure of serum sodium to rise has not been shown uh, to be a component uh, of the pathology, rather a symptom or a sign uh, of the pathology. Having said all that, uh, when we see serum sodium uh, fail to rise or a corrected sodium that begins to drop, the right approach, because we don't have any, uh, any better data, is to increase the concentration of uh, sodium chloride in the fluids that we're delivering. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. The other findings of this study uh, were interesting in that uh, there was a whole slew of uh, risk factors that were not identified as being significant. Uh, you see those uh, on the screen. And uh, importantly, uh, they include uh, initial glucose. Uh, it's very helpful for clinicians over the years to understand that a glucose of 1200 is no more risky than a glucose of 600. Uh, what matters is the degree of acidosis, degree of uh, dehydration, uh, the factors that we talked about before. Uh, uh, as of this study, giving an insulin bolus didn't uh, attribute uh, increased risk. Risk. The rate of insulin infusion didn't seem to matter. Rate of IV fluid, even the rate of sodium administration, as I mentioned. Uh, one important caveat to a retrospective study, however, is that one can only measure uh, within the range that was done. Now, rate of IV fluid, for example, uh, was not shown to be a significant risk factor. Uh, but in animal models, we know that if we give a massive amount of fluid to patients with DKA, uh, we will uh, engender a lot of significant cerebral edema. And so why did that not happen here? Why was that not noticed here? And I think the answer is that patients in this study didn't give a massive amount, didn't receive a massive amount of IV fluid. Uh, and as a result, uh, in a retrospective study, when uh, one is uh, uh, practicing within reason, uh, you may not pick up a lot of unreasonable uh, practices. Uh, there was a similar, done, uh, similar study done by uh, Dr. Julie Edge in Europe. Uh, she found uh, similar uh, risk factors, but two slightly different ones that are worth mentioning. One is she noted a trend uh, towards higher risk in younger patients, and that's something that intuitively we uh, believe, that a younger patient with a full diaper and good urine output uh, is not considered to be sick patient, and we see that all the time. Uh, and also that new onset diabetics are at higher risk uh, for developing significant cerebral edema, again, presumably due to delayed presentation uh, because the families are not skilled in noticing the symptoms of uh, evolving DKA. Diagnosis of DKA. Now, a patient is admitted, they're in your unit. What signs are you really looking for to diagnose cerebral edema at the time and, and to consider therapy? Well, Dr. Mir uh, reviewed a bunch of really severe cases and came up with a uh, set of diagnostic criteria. Now, uh, I, I don't um, uh, advocate for the strict use of this, um, of this particular protocol and particular formula, uh, but the lists are, are quite helpful and quite informative. On the diagnostic column, we have uh, some uh, symptoms that I think all of us would jump in and treat 
uh, pretty instantaneously. If a patient is unresponsive to pain, if a patient has decorticated or decerebrate posturing, uh, if, cranial, if a patient has a new cranial nerve palsy, uh, and finally, if they have a neurogenic respiratory pattern, which is really something close to agonal respiratory pattern. And of course, that is the third component of Cushing's triad. The second component uh, being bradycardia, and uh, Dr. Muir actually uh, qu quantifies this as a change of greater than 20 beats per minute uh, from baseline. And then the first component of Cushing's triad, which is actually extremely common, uh, is hypertension, uh, quantified by him as a, a diastolic blood pressure greater than 90. Uh, we, had, despite patients presenting with hypovolemia and dehydration, they um, uh, curiously have increased uh, uh, systemic vascular resistance, increased tone, uh, and have relative hypertension. Uh, the other major uh, risk factors are interesting. Uh, significantly altered mentation, mental status, uh, and then age-dependent incontinence. Uh, this one struck me when I first read the paper. Uh, because we uh, patients will often come in in the evening and at night, and you know you take a five-year-old who's been uh, toilet trained and give them the worst night of their life. They keep them up all night. You give them a huge amount of fluids. They have a pH of 7.1, and they wet the bed. Is that really meaningful? And it turns out from this data that it is. And so that's become uh, one additional item that we focus on in our uh, hospital, uh, and that nurses and uh, house staff are really quite attuned to. Uh, the minor criteria are pretty common. Uh, vi uh, vomiting, uh, headache, uh, lethargy, not being easily aroused. Uh, in my own uh, estimation, when I do a neurologic exam for a patient, uh, I will stimulate the patient to whatever extent they need. Uh, but if even after significant stimulation, they are then able uh, to answer questions appropriately, meaning uh, birthday, uh, where they are, what they're doing here, name, that sort of thing, uh, then I uh, tend to allow their mental status to be characterized as uh, acceptable. Um, he also noticed that uh, children at a young age were at increased risk, as we've seen before. Development of DKA. When does one uh, get the significant event, the, the cerebral edema? Uh, well, in uh, Dr. Glazer's paper, she noticed that uh, several had it when they walked into the ED, meaning uh, it can't be true that all significant cerebral edema is related to therapy. Uh, and uh, it leads to the idea that there's uh, something about the patient, something about, uh, we mentioned before, the, the size of the skull, the amount of extraaxial space, uh, and it may have more to do with the severity of the acidosis uh, uh, and uh, how long they've been ill. All these factors we haven't been able to identify, but what we can tell you uh, is that some patients will get uh, significant edema without any therapy. Uh, the, the bulk of events, meaning development of significant edema, uh, occur within the first six hours. By hour 12, 13, uh, you're really largely uh, out of the woods. Uh, but there are some stragglers, uh, and uh, those tend to be patients uh, who just aren't quite uh, responding fully. Um, their course uh, ends up being a little bit longer than you might expect. Uh, but those are a few and, and far between. Therapies for DKA. Uh, now, what happens if we believe we've, we have a patient with significant cerebral edema? We have a blown pupil. We have decorticate posturing. We have patients who are unresponsive. 
Uh, well, then uh, we need to call for our appropriate supports, local supports, hospital supports, uh, so that if we do need to take an airway, we're able to do that. Um, but uh, we also call for the appropriate therapy. Now, what is the appropriate first-line therapy? There are two competing therapies out there right now. One is uh, mannitol, uh, and one is 3% hypertonic saline. While 3% hypertonic saline has uh, some uh, reasonable data that's been reported with it in traumatic brain injury, uh, there are hardly any data reported uh, in the use uh, with its use in diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, as a result, and also as a result of some data I'll show you in a minute, uh, I use first-line therapy as mannitol. Uh, we use one gram per kilo, we infuse it over 15 minutes. Uh, uh, please remember that mannitol sitting on a shelf for a long period of time can form some crystals, and so when one draws it from the vial, one needs to use an, a needle with a filter. Uh, and uh, it is very well tolerated. It does result in uh, increased urine output uh, during the hours that follow, and so one has to uh, keep track of that hypovolemia that may follow mannitol administration. Second-line therapy, if mannitol does not work, is 3% saline. Uh, there is some debate on what the actual recommended dose of 3% saline is. Uh, an equimolar dose to the mannitol dose that we've, dose that we've used over the years is 5 ml per kilo. Uh, again, we infuse it over 15 minutes. However, in this particular case, uh, if a patient's mental status improves, I would halt the infusion immediately. Uh, one does not want to run the risk of central pontine myelolysis uh, by acutely raising uh, the uh, serum sodium uh, any further than needed to restore a reasonable mental status. Uh, if uh, the patient does not uh, respond and uh, they lose their airway reflexes, uh, intubation uh, may be warranted and one wants to use an agent uh, that takes into account the increased intracranial pressure, uh, for example, thiopental uh, with or without the use of lidocaine. After intubation, I would hyperventilate uh, down to the uh, end tidal CO2 that the patient had prior to losing their mental status. Hyperventilation while not a standard therapy for, for uh, increased intracranial pressure and cerebral edema, is exactly what this patient has been doing for many hours prior to losing their mental status. And so while one doesn't want to uh, go beyond what they were doing, one wants to go back to what they were doing uh, and then slowly raise it over time as, if, as uh, they would do if they were conscious. Um, finally, uh, a head CT is really not necessarily part of the algorithm. Uh, the decision to treat ought to be made based on clinical symptoms. The head CT can show significant cerebral edema on virtually any patient with DKA. And so the presence or absence on CT is not going to guide therapy. If a patient has edema but is alert and awake, you're not going to treat. And if a patient is obtunded and non-responsive and the CT is negative, you are going to treat. And so again, treat based on clinical symptomatology. The debate between mannitol and 3% saline really uh, is an active one. And in looking at some retrospective data over the last decade, it looks like uh, in the United States, the use of 3% saline has gone up quite dramatically, especially in uh, the last few years. Uh, however, in looking at uh, the uh, survival or the odds ratio for survival when using one therapy over the other, uh, it, it, there is a hint in this admittedly retrospective database study uh, that there's in, an increased mortality 
uh, with the use of with the use of hypertonic saline as first line therapy. Uh, that has contributed to our decision here to use mannitol uh, exclusively as first-line therapy. Therapies for DKA update. At the end of 2013, we published a retrospective analysis of mortality in DKA, which revealed some new data, which is worth considering when choosing a therapy for cerebral edema in DKA. The study looked at a total of 43,000 patients uh, with DKA in an administrative database. Patients were identified as having cerebral edema as a complication of DKA based on the codes that physicians and hospitals build at the end of the admission. We were able to identify patients who had a CT scan as well as those mechanically ventilated or admitted to an ICU. Over the course of a decade, uh, it, was, it became clear that the use of 3% hypertonic saline has gone up dramatically over the last few years. While starting close to uh, 0% uh, percent in uh, 1999, uh, it had gone up to roughly 50% of uh, cases by the year 2008-2009. Concomitantly, the use of mannitol as uh, solo therapy has gone down. The use of the two together remains relatively infrequent. Over that same time period, mortality in patients with DKA has also gone down quite significantly, from 0.47% in 2000 to a low of 0.08% in 2009. This is a logistic regression uh, taking account the effective discharge year adjusted for hospital clustering and is statistically significant. The odds ratio uh, of mortality in patients treated for DKA uh, when looked at uh, mannitol versus hypertonic saline is in fact increased slight, uh, slightly with the use of hypertonic saline alone uh, to an adjusted odds ratio of 2.7 which is statistically significant even after taking into account other significant factors such as male gender, use of mechanical ventilation, uh, and uh, CT scanning. This has allowed us uh, to uh, create some uh, additional thoughts that should be considered uh, when treating someone for DKA. Uh, it's noted that this is the largest retrospective study that's ever been conducted in DKA and that over the decade that was studied, the rate of treatment for cerebral edema has increased fourfold, while the overall mortality in DKA has decreased by 80%. However, this de decrease was not associated with the marked rise in use of 3% saline as therapy. In fact, there is a slight increase in mortality among those who receive 3% saline after conducting an adjusted analysis. These data ought to be considered when choosing a rescue therapy for cerebral edema in DKA. I thank you very much for uh, listening uh, and look forward to interacting with you online with any questions that develop. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.
For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.